Hello, this is Spotlight on Lead Poisoning, brought to you by Southern United Neighborhoods, a nonprofit committed to environmental, social, and economic justice for low-income and working families. For more information, please visit our website at southernunitedneighborhoods.org or give us a call at 1-800-239-7379. My name is Marie. This is part two of my interview with Dr. Howard Milkey. And so it gives us some hope because when, even as negative as things are right now going on with COVID-19 across the world and economies falling apart and people losing their jobs, one of the silver linings has been that you've seen clearer air, cleaner air all across the world, right, from people reducing the amount that they're commuting and in their cars and the pollution and the flying around the world. And so this is a time where we can be thinking about how to make our environment better and healthier, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put it, um, a chance to slow down a little bit, pay attention to what's taking place, and respond appropriately in terms of trying to improve the environment we're living in. And so is there anything else that you'd like people to know about lead poisoning and the connection with um, COVID-19 and what we can be doing to protect ourselves? Well, you know, unfortunately, people who have chronic diseases right now and are on dialysis uh, have uh, a very high risk. They're in a high-risk group for uh, very serious outcomes from COVID-19 and unfortunately a high death rate. Mm -hmm. And so um, if I had any wish for the future would be to try to prevent that from happening, the exposures to happen in the first place. And um, that is, you know, something that our generation can take on to improve the environment for the future. And then try to find, you know, we I think through public health measures that are being taken place that are taking place right now, the distancing and washing hands and you know, trying to prevent the uh, you know, COVID-19 from being spread is, of course, critical. And we need to, you know, everybody's talking about measuring. We don't really have good handle on how many people have been exposed and are uh, either partially immune right now and have had COVID-19 didn't realize it or um, have COVID-19 but such mild cases that they're not in extreme stress. And um, those are things that have to be, should have been done and uh, are necessary if we're going to get some control over um, the spread and the continuing epidemic of COVID-19. And I 
I'm not the the main expert on this field. <laughs> I'm certainly um, following the advice that I hear from other, you know, from the experts in our society. So. Yeah, because we don't really know how many people have it or had it. A lot of people were totally had no symptoms, right? Or seemed to have no symptoms or they weren't noticeable and they spread it well, to other yeah. people. Apparently, I mean there's there's some people who, you know, have a bad cough and then um, for a few days and then recover from that. It's it doesn't get into a very serious mode and other people goes a different direction it becomes very serious so and and if they you know especially people with chronic diseases in the first place an elder I'm one of the elder in our society right now so I have to pay attention to those kinds of details yeah because we have a lot of people on dialysis and kidney failure seems to be caused sometimes by um, toxics, toxic metals in our body, um, environmental hazards, but also sometimes medication that people are on, right, for years and years and years. One of the risks is kidney failures always, right? Yeah, it's it, it's certainly kidney and hypertension. Yeah. Um, high blood pressure, which is related. So, so it's yeah, very important um, of what you're saying to do the preventative work to prevent chronic diseases that lead to situations like what we're in now. Yeah. And um, if we don't take those steps, you know, we just putting off to the future additional problems with, uh, with the kinds of, of health, really health risks that are showing up within the population um, later on in life. And yeah. You want to prevent that in the first place, if you can. I mean, we can. It's preventable. I mean, lead poisoning is preventable. Um yeah, that's the thing about lead, right? It's 100% preventable. Right. It's, a, it's by and large uh, associated with human activities. In fact, I can't think of any reason, anything that, I mean, lead is a natural material in, in rocks in the ground, but on the surface, it's very small amounts of lead are, are seen in rural soils. Now, five to ten parts per million is the, the kind of, of um, the amount of lead that you would see naturally within a good rural soil. But mm -hmm. it, when they're mines or when there's um, high traffic, the mines are uh, the source of lead that is being smelted and the smelted lead goes into products, and in the past it's been leaded, uh, leaded paint, 
lead-based paint and certainly lead lead and gasoline. And lead and gasoline, when it's released into the environment, it's totally invisible. You have no idea that it's, that's part of the process of contaminating the environment, but it, it was. And the contamination levels were astounding how much lead was released into the environment from the use of lead and gasoline. Well, that's been stopped for for the most part. There's still some lead and gasoline in AV, Avgas, which is the gas that's used in piston um, engines for small aircraft. It doesn't have to be there. Um, it's there because of a perception that it should be there, but it doesn't mm-hmm. have it's um the engines that are being put into small aircraft these days, the piston engines are designed for mo gas for the motor gasoline, the normal gasoline that you would get at the pump. Part of my concern is that unfortunately there's a an allowable amount of lead in motor gasoline because of the fact that the same fuels go through the same pipe. I mean, the same pipelines are used to move both avgas, the leaded gasoline, and the unleaded gasoline. So a, an accommodation was made uh, to pre- so that if there was a little bit of lead in unleaded gasoline, that it would be considered legal. And, mm. uh, that has, you don't need that. You know, there's no reason. Um, there are there are fuels that have already been um, that are on the market uh, for small aircraft that are unleaded gasoline. You can go to a map and look up where airports that have unleaded all unleaded gasoline for aviation use. Um, if you're a pilot. So, why is there a resistance to switching over completely? Because um, of the cost, or it isn't actually. It's more. It's it costs more. Um, there might be a cost advantage to having lead, but I don't. I don't know. I don't know the details of that. Um, In the past, they used. Just at the time that lead was being taken out of gasoline, in the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, leaded gasoline was used as a loss leader. They were selling leaded gasoline uh, at, for, at a lower cost than unleaded gasoline. Um, and that created some problems because some people were cheating and using unleaded gasoline in cars that were designed for unleaded gasoline, and it was causing enormous difficulties and mm. demand for more leaded gasoline. But now we're past that. Yeah. But that, you know, in modern aircraft engines, um, I spent some time at Piper plant in Florida, and they, they said specifically that they 
all of the engines that are being produced and put into these new aircraft are designed for unleaded gasoline, not for leaded gasoline. But um, they burn both, and uh, it seemed to be a resistance among pilots. They needed their lead. And it's so, like they're just stuck in their old ways, or sometimes behaviors are hard to change. Yeah, and you know that's you know, and that's part of it's a learning problem. It's and, and understanding of the impact. Uh, we know that the studies have been done showing that uh, the commercial, the, the, uh, the types of airports that have uh, small aircraft, uh, what are those general a aviation airports, uh, the children who live ne near those airports have higher blood lead levels than children who live away from those airports, mm -hmm. indication of the potency of lead aerosols in re raising blood lead levels. And so that's been, you know, studies have been done and shown that that's, those are problems. So you, you would think that you could do something about it. And I know EPA has had some good work done in the past, but a lot of regulations are being cut, and um, it's hard knowing exactly what's taking place right now. Yeah, it's a strange time, but I think education is always the key, right? Because just the more you can keep bringing it up and letting people know that it's a problem, but there are things that can be done to make things better. But yeah, and then and then you have the complexity that people who have been lead poisoned have a difficult time learning. Yeah. And so you can't always count on um, the generation that, especially the generation that grew up during the 1950s, 60s, 70s, into the 80s, were the generation that were most highly exposed to lead aerosols well that's that's the generation now that it's uh, is running well making the decisions for the yeah, society yeah so we need to do more to educate our younger people who are involved in environmental issues right um, and for sure. um leading the way um, well in you know and we have good examples of that. Greta yeah. is a wonderful example. Greta Thunberg, uh, she's she's out there um, making enormous strides towards uh, education. Uh, very young, but very dedicated to to the work. I've just been reading uh, the story about her family. Uh, our house is on fire. It has a subtitle, but you know, um, crisis in families and the environment. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's it's inspiring to read. Um, but 
also very disturbing because her family has an amazing story about um, difficulties that they had uh, as growing up. The children were, had major difficulties. And not yeah. necessarily because of lead exposure, but just because of you know, some other, either other kinds of environmental assaults or um, just the times, you know, the, the children are very sensitive and they're sensitive in ways that are probably um, more, they're more attuned to what's taking place in the environment than the adults are. They're paying more attention to the little insects and to the flowers and to the what's around them and yeah as they and you know it's always fun to watch children and um notice their their cute sense of, you know attention i've always been fascinated by the the fact that children that bare soil is a magnet for children they they just you can put a really nice um, play area in on a playground, and you'll see the children on the edge of the playground digging into the soil. It's it's amazing, and it's just like soil is is an essential part of their um, growth and development, and that's possibly um, related to the need to for Oh, you know, exposure to the microbiome and the development of um, a a flora and fauna, or you know, microbiome within the gut yeah. to do the digestion and things. And you know, it's it's an area that I find fascinating because the gut is really part of the outside environment and. Exposure to certain microbe, microbes are important for children. But and if it's universal all over the world. You see kids just out there, they want to be outside in the dirt. Right, in the dirt. <laughs> and if the dirt is, is, is in some way contaminated, then they run into problems. Or yeah. if the dirt has, has uh, there are certain organisms that can cause enormous difficulties if they're ingested. So, you know, that it's all it's all a matter there there's a lot of um balance required and understanding and then you know making sure that um children are uh, appropriately uh, have appropriate environments to play in. Yeah. Should be one of our number one priorities yeah, to protect yeah. children in right. our environment. Yeah. So environmental health for children um, is really important. I'm a member of a group called the International Society for Children's Health and Environment, and um, these are the kinds of issues that we 
spend quite a bit of time thinking about and working on. So um, there are groups of people who are paying attention, and you know we certainly have good epidemiologists, and um, I think you know that there's a, a range of acceptance or rejection of the um, insights that epidemiologists have. Um, that would certainly be true with children's health as well. Um, there are some people who just don't appreciate or understand the idea that we need to find a way to green our environment to make it a safer and cleaner environment for children. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's okay, always a pleasure, and I always learn so much about what we can do and how we can do things better to prevent lead poisoning. Well, thank you, Marie, and appreciate your um, attention to this issue. Thanks. You have been listening to Spotlight on Lead Poisoning from Southern United Neighborhoods. If you would like to help prevent lead poisoning, please visit our website at southernunitedneighborhoods.org or give us a call at 1-800-239-7379.